it's a mixed place. <laughs> it's a mixed place. And actually, when I was talking about how I learned Spanish, I, I took a lot of that in school. And uh, obviously, the, the Hispanic population is pretty predominant around here and in various ways. I actually worked at a, yeah, I'll save it for the thing. If you know Joe Scott, it is likely that you do so because of his great series, Answers with Joe. But he has been a scriptwriter, a copywriter, and work on news? How did he end up becoming a YouTuber? Today, we answer that question. I am Alex, and this is Genesis. We, we can get started so you can tell your story, because I'm curious. Well, where I was going to go with that, though, was what you learn in Texas, the Spanish that you learn here, I think is closer really to what is spoken in Spain than, mm. than what like the Mexicans speak. Really? Why? All I know is I took four years of Spanish and still couldn't speak to anybody around here. (laughs) (laughs) And there's all kinds of slang and stuff that are, that are more like Mexican and not even just Mexican, but like Tex-Mex, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, what is it like? Keonda way? That's very Mexican. Yeah. 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 There's lots of little phrases like that. And of course, working in restaurants, I learned all the curse words and and all that. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So actually, let's let's use that as a bridge to get started <laughs> sure. because um, I actually have a feeling that you have a lot of stories to share just based off what you've told me. Were you born in Texas? Yeah. Yeah. So you have spent your whole life living there. I have, which is depressing. <laughs> Not that I hate Texas or anything. It's just like my sister, She um, she's traveled a lot. She lived in New York for a while. She lived in North Carolina, Denver. She's in Boise, Idaho now. And I've just lived here my whole life. When I graduated high school, I was literally living in a house like one block away from the hospital where I was born. Wow. And then I moved off to college, the University of Texas in Denton, which is just north of Dallas, about 30 miles north of Dallas. And then I just kind of like, moved down to Dallas. And that's just kind of, I don't know. <laughs> that's just kind of where I landed. Interesting. Not really, but. <laughs> no, it, it's, there's a lot to dig in there. So what did you went to university for? I studied radio, TV, film. Oh. So RTVF. I kind of originally, like I was really into music back when I was in high school. And that's one of these things that has really slipped. And I, I get really sad about that. But I was really into music and University of North Texas actually has a pretty phenomenal music school. I think they're, I don't know if this is still true. It was when I went there, but they're supposed to be like the second best jazz school in the country next to Juilliard. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, you really wouldn't think so, but then you go there and it's like, wow, it's just music everywhere, which is kind of great. Denton, Texas is a, a great little town. But that's kind of why I originally wanted to go there. And I realized really quickly that I was totally out of my league in terms of musical talent. So, you know, the, the other thing that I was always interested in was filmmaking. So I, I majored in RTVF and got a minor in advertising. Advertisement. Okay, so the decision regarding the minor, was that like, oh, this could be a useful thing to get a job at least? If anything goes wrong. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call it a fallback necessarily, but it was like a creative job that, you know, you could actually go and apply for that is easier than, you know, getting to make movies, which is Yeah, that is usually always has demand, usually. Yeah. yeah. So did you end up working in anything related to advertising? Yes. So let's go back through the history of Joe Scott. (laughs) I got right out of college. I got super lucky. I got a job at a company that was called BSA Advertising. They don't even exist anymore. I actually had a corner office. I think they just had an extra room that happened to be a corner office. 
and they just put me in it. And I've never had an office that size since. <laughs> but that was like the first office that I had outside of college. But the problem with BSA was they were a, a small recruitment advertising agency. So we, we did a lot of like hiring campaigns for companies, mm. you know, if they're looking to, to hire for, for specific talents and whatnot. The problem is, and I don't know if this is true of every industry, but like I was branded immediately after that as a recruitment writer. So, so after I got laid off from there, they just had some cutbacks because economic downturn or whatever. But actually when, I guess it was when in 2000, I guess that would be the dot-com bubble when... Uh, wow. Hell of a time to be losing your job. Oh my God. Well, I was like the canary in the coal mine because when, uh, you know, there's an economic downturn on the way, the first thing people do is they stop hiring, mm-hmm. you know? And so we were running hiring campaigns. And so that was one of the first things that went. So yeah, I got, I got laid off. And then as I was trying to find a new job, well, first of all, we were in an economic downturn, which kind of sucks, but every job that I applied for, they would look at my resume and they'd be like, oh, so you're a recruitment writer. And I'm like, well, that was the job that I had, but I can write other things, you know? It's just like they just immediately stamped you with that label. And I, I, I really struggled to, to get beyond that for a while. So uh, the, the question will be then, how did you break away from that? It took a little time. So actually going back to speaking the, the, the Spanish language that we were talking about earlier, for a while there, I was just kind of, I guess you would call it underemployed. I was just kind of like taking whatever job came my way and it, they usually didn't pay very well and they were not very stable. But one of them, I actually was, I kind of went back to my RTVF roots. I was, I was doing some editing for a Spanish language commercial production company. So I was editing commercials in Spanish for car dealerships. Okay, wait, how does that work? <laughs> I, I will have thought that they will have like hired native Spanish speakers for that. So I'm a little bit surprised. How did that work? Yeah, wouldn't you think? I actually don't remember how. I think it was just like I knew a guy who was Hispanic, by the way, but I, I knew a guy who was working for this guy. It was not a good experience. Let's just put it that way. The, the guy who ran the company was a total shyster and he, he had bankrupted multiple companies in a row. It, it was not like I wasn't working there by choice. It was just like, oh, cool. Somebody's going to pay me to do some work. Okay, I'll do it. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think uh, a buddy of mine that is Hispanic, he was working there. He got hooked up with this guy and I needed some work. So he, he pulled me in, but the, the editing process, I mean, I, I knew enough to kind of get by, but mostly I was just kind of cutting to syllables, you know, just making sure that I wasn't mm-hmm. doubling up syllables or anything. They could have been saying something totally wrong and I probably wouldn't have quite known, but there, there were other people. I was, I was, let's see, I think there were like four or five people there and I was really the only one that didn't, that wasn't like a, a native Hispanic person. So, so yeah, there were other people there to watch it and make sure I didn't screw up too bad. <laughs> this still sounds like a, like a complicated, stressful experience. Oof. Well, it, it wasn't, that wasn't the stressful part. The stressful part was working for a guy that just was, had no morals <laughs> whatsoever. And, you know, and, 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 it, and it ended with a lawsuit, you know, that it's, the whole thing was bad. That, that dude was like one of the few people that I met in my life that I'm like, that is a terrible human being. Wow. Yeah. He would, I'm going to censor myself. I don't know how, uh, how you how much language you it, it's it's fine it's fine i don't usually use much language in my in my uh show or anything but this was a guy who would brag about fucking people over oh god yeah like he it was a it was a point of pride for him he would just like oh i fucked that guy over and i fucked that guy over and i'm like i'm glad i'm working for you because this could never go bad <laughs> oh boy yeah it was a bad situation and i got out when i could so how did you get out I got out because he ran the company into the ground and it just kind of all <laughs> fell apart. And so, yeah, I kind of went back to just doing freelance work and 
it was a pretty rough time. I remember I worked for Blockbuster Video Corporate for literally four days. I was doing like temp jobs and stuff and Blockbuster Corporate was here in Dallas. <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories. I, I got hired as a temp person and I went down there downtown, one of the big tall buildings, and they put me in a desk and they gave me a computer and they were like, we're going to have one of our IT guys come over and set up this computer for you. In the meantime, just, just hang out. We'll, you know, we'll get you taken care of. I'm like, okay. And I sat there, this was a Monday. I sat there all day and nobody ever came to set up the computer. And I'm like looking around at everybody. I'm like, can I help anybody with anything? And they're like, oh, don't worry. We got plenty of work. You're going to be fine. I'm like, well, okay. You know? And then at the end of the day, I was like, I guess I'm going to go. So I went home came back the next day, same thing happened. Oh God. I sat there for, yeah, I sat there for two straight days, literally just staring at the wall. It had nothing to do. And, and everybody kept saying, no, 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 we got plenty of work for you. Just, just hang on. The third day I had a laptop and I thought, well, maybe I could just bring my laptop and maybe I could do some work on that. I don't know. So I brought it and they still didn't give me anything to do. So I just kind of opened it up and started working on stuff like my own personal stuff. I had I've been a screenwriter since forever, and we can talk about that if you want, but there was a screenplay I was working on at the time, so I just pulled up my laptop and was working on that while I was waiting for them to give me something to do. So that was, I guess, Tuesday? No, Wednesday. That was Wednesday. Came in on Thursday, and they fired me. And when I asked why, they were like, because you were working on personal stuff on company time. <laughs> and I was like, you guys oh, gave me nothing to do. Like, what was I supposed to do? Yeah, so that was a four-day blockbuster video experience. I don't know why they went under. <laughs> so, I mean, it was like jobs like that for a while, for like a good couple of years. It was not fun. I mean, I think there's something about being in your 20s and not really having that much of a, a resume to fall back on. And yeah, you know, it, it, it was a, an economically not great time in any way. So, um, yeah, I was working retail jobs and, and that kind of deal. And then um, eventually, finally, I got a... It wasn't really a temp job. It was just a freelance, kind of a full-time freelance job at the Dallas Morning News. And that eventually turned into a full-time job. And I worked there for 13 years. So, okay. Whoa. Okay. Before we <laughs> head into that, because that, that was an unexpected finding a stability like that. Yeah. You mentioned that you were working on screenplays. So mm -hmm. is this something you started doing while in university? Or you, you mentioned that you went to university because you wanted to make movies. Yeah. So yeah. was this a thing that was happening in parallel in your well, life? Well, I started, I wrote my first screenplay at 15 years old. So to really go back, to, to, to go backwards in time a little bit, I grew up in this very, very small town in Texas, 2,000 people, total population. I graduated in a high school class of 48. And I think it's safe to say there wasn't a whole lot to do there. So I just sort of went inward and started getting, um, just working on creative stuff, you know, and that's kind of how I got into music. But I also got into writing screenplays. And some of these things I'm going to talk about are going to really date me. I'm, I'm probably the oldest person that you've talked to on this podcast. Nope. The, no? I, it, so far, it doesn't seem so. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think I'm the oldest person on Nebula. At least I feel like it a lot of times. Mm, there, there's a lot of channels that are operated by a lot of people, some of mm. them passively older than you. Okay, well, good. I, that makes me feel a little better. Well, but where I'm going with that was like, this was pre-internet. And I wanted to, I, I was really into movies. I think that I might have had a different relationship to movies growing up than most people do because there wasn't a movie theater in my hometown. The closest movie theater was an hour's drive away. And so going to a movie was like a big deal. And it was something like the whole family would get together. My cousins would come into town and we'd all go see, you know, E.T. or whatever. 
And so like going to the movie was like a big experience to me. So I think I just kind of fell in love with the medium for that reason. Uh, and maybe a different way than, than other people might, at least that's my, that's how I look at it. But, but yeah, I, I started trying to write screenplays. I didn't, like I said, the internet didn't exist. So I had to literally, I don't even know where my mom found this, but there was a, a catalog of screenplays that you could order. And I ordered a few screenplays off of it and just kind of learned the format and taught myself. I, I had a typewriter at home that I, I used and I wrote wow. my first horrible screenplay at 15 years old. And that just kind of became the thing that I did. So when I went off to college, I'd already had probably, I don't know, four or five screenplays that I'd written. Nothing got made, obviously, but it was just stuff that I'd written. So I guess amongst my film film school peers, I was like the writer. So I, I worked on some some screenplays, some short films and stuff, uh, both for school and just for, you know, for fun. Yeah, by the time I got out, I mean, if I had the resources, I would have moved out to L.A. and really tried to make a go for it. But I just didn't, you know. So I stayed there in Dallas and, and started working in advertising. So advertising took you eventually to working on news for 13 years, you said? Is it 13? Is it 12 or 13? I think so, 13 total, because I got hired oh full-time so, after about a year and a half. So, yeah. So, after the previous instability, what got you to stay that long there? Well, so, I, I want to clarify real quick. I, I wasn't, like, working as a journalist. I was working, they had their own sort of internal advertising agency in in the building. So, I worked on campaigns for, mm -hmm. for local clients, but also uh, a little bit of stuff for the for the newspaper in general. And, you know, they were transitioning to online and that kind of thing. So it was actually a really interesting time to be working at a place for that long and doing advertising because it completely changed from the moment I started to the moment I left. Everything went digital. SEO became a big part of everything. It was just, uh, yeah, everything changed. And, you know, the, the question of why I stayed there as long as I did, I guess you could say I was a little bit burned by the experience of having three or four years of just barely getting by. You know, and just that constant stress of being mm -hmm. broke all the time. And, you know, am I going to be able to pay my rent? I actually did go bankrupt at one point. And somewhere in there, I didn't even talk about this yet, but I actually did get a film made. I made a movie called Oceanfront Property. And uh, it played at festivals and didn't really get any distribution or anything. I didn't really make any money off of it, but I did get some some screenwriting work off of it, some paid screenwriting work. I did that for a few years, you know, kind of simultaneously while I was working at the paper. But I think, you know, I had benefits. I had insurance. I was having, I had a, a steady paycheck and right around that time I also got married. And so we bought a house and, you know, you, you need a, a little bit more stability to pay your mortgage and everything. So I guess that would answer why I didn't leave. It was just, you know, it was, it was nice having a steady paycheck for a while there. And you get kind of trapped in things too. R routine. It can play a number on you. So two things, I, I guess eventually I, I want to find out what was happening with the movies you were doing while mm. doing this and the script writing that you were doing while doing this. But when in this story did YouTube as a service enter the picture and you being a consumer mm. of YouTube content? Because being uh, enamored a little bit with the idea of stability, the YouTube business is basically the complete opposite <laughs> of that. So I'm, I'm curious to see what changed yeah, that drew yeah. you to YouTube. Well, the first thing I ever put on YouTube... I might be one of the first channels ever to go up on YouTube, if I'm being honest, <laughs> because 
I checked. It's like 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I think it was, uh, I think I did set it up in 2006 or 2007. So wow. I didn't really get serious about it till 2014. I'll get to that in a second, I guess. Okay, let me get my timeline straight. So I made this film, Oceanfront Property. I guess we shot it in like 2003. And then it took about a year to get it all edited and ready to go. So it was like 2005 when I started doing the festival circuit. And I remember they had a service, I think it still exists. It was called Without a Box. And it was like a platform where you could submit to different film festivals, which of course there's an entry fee for all of them. It could get kind of expensive and stuff. But my big frustration was this was just pre-YouTube. And the only way to send a trailer for this movie to the festivals or any you know distribution people that I was trying to market it to basically was to just compress it down as small as possible and, and attach it to an email. Like that was the only option. There wasn't, uh, w- well, when YouTube came out and it was like, oh, here's a place you can just upload a video and all I have to do is send a link. That was revolutionary. That was like such a big deal. And so immediately I was like, yes, I need to do that because it was it was so frustrating to spend all that time making this trailer to to be as beautiful and, and spectacular as I could possibly get it. And then you have to make it like postage stamp sized in like five frames a second, you know. But here you could <laughs> you could upload it in glorious 480p, right? At the time. So I I I jumped on YouTube immediately. And of course YouTube at the time was not what it is now. It wasn't like a social platform or anything. It was just a a repository of video content basically, you know. And to this day, the very first thing, the very first video on my channel was the trailer for for that movie. So I uploaded that there just as a place to, again, have a link that I could send people to and have it be a little bit prettier. And then I started doing promotional stuff on there for it, like promotional videos to uh, for the movie. And I was inspired by Zay Frank. You know who Zay Frank is? Yeah, the, yeah. the granddaddy of a lot of OG YouTubers. And she's right up on it, and she looks over and... What the fuck? Look at her. <laughs> She's like, get me out of here. Yes, yes. I'm glad you give him his his props because like I I always say like everybody who does vlogging is doing Zay Frank and they don't they don't know it. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and that was pre-YouTube. Like he just had his channel, the show with Zay Frank, and I would go to work every morning and just like, you know, I would I had his little his what was it, the RSS feed or whatever, you know, and I would just go click on it and watch that day's video. And um, I was really inspired by that. I was like, this is a really interesting, I don't know if it sounds pretentious or not, but art form, you know? Mm-hmm. And I also dabbled in stand-up a little bit. So it was kind of, it kind of seemed to mix the 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 video film aspect of of the of you know what I was into and also just the comedy aspect and stand up and all the all the stuff. So I just really loved what he did. So I I you know I put the trailer out on the channel and then I started doing these little Zay Frank-esque <laughs> they're still up there, they're terrible. Uh, <laughs> pro- promotional things for the movie. And that lasted, I don't know, six months or so, maybe not even that long. Um, and this was again, this was 2008 seven, eight, nine, something like that. And that kind of walked away from it. And at this point I was working at the, at the paper and, and it was a steady job and that's good. But I've, I've always been somebody that no matter what, I've always had some creative project that I'm working on, on the side. It was usually a screenplay up at that point. Yeah. I started like after I had done those and then, I don't know, maybe only did like six or seven of those, uh, sort of promoting the film. 
but I started kind of just realizing like that kind of scratches all the itches. You know, I get to write, I get to produce, I get to perform, edit, I get to do the whole thing and then I can put it up. And this is, this is the joke that I always tell when, when you make a film, you know, you might spend a year or two crafting the screenplay and then the production, the pre-production on it of raising the money and, and getting everything together, that might be a good six months, even if you're lucky. And then you shoot the film over a few months and then it takes, you know, six months to a year to edit it. And then you finally maybe get some distribution or get into a film festival and people watch it and they're like, yeah, it's good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Whereas with YouTube, you can crank something out in one day and put it up and people will immediately tell you that it sucks. <laughs> yes. So yeah, so it's better. So so I, I was I was intrigued by that. Like it's something like you can just like put it out there, and it's it's not so much of a you know filmmaking is just an endless series of catch twenty twos. You got to have the money to get the actor. You got to have the actor to get the money. You know that kind of thing. And YouTube just kind of took all that away. It's just like I can just create stuff and put it up there. So I would kind of dabble with it here and there, and I'm working full time the whole the whole way, and. I also saw it as a bit of a learning opportunity because, you know, again, the, the advertising industry and the, the online media industry was just changing so fast. And you could see the graphs where like the amount of online video content consumption was just like, you know, exponential. And I'm like, okay, so this is where things are going. I need to get a, a handle on this, you know? And so I started just kind of dabbling in that and just like making these videos. And I would, I would do it for a while and get, you know, kind of all jacked up over the numbers and the, you know how it is when you first get started and it's just like uh, pulling teeth to get anybody to watch it. And so I kind of, I mean, we're, we're getting into the whole, actually the birth of the YouTube channel at this point, if you want to go there. But for, for me, it was like, it was a creative outlet. I didn't really see it as something that was going to take over. Yeah. I never really saw it as something that was going to be like a full-time thing later on, or even a, a, a revenue stream that much. I mean, I knew you could make money off of it, but it was really mostly just a learning experience. It was something that I was trying to get ahead of. And I was really frustrated at my job because as I was learning more about it, I was trying to get them on board with it. I felt like that was, I felt like I had more value to the company as a video production person or a video um uh, strategist, that might be the right word, for, for all these companies and for the marketing and stuff. And eventually, I'm going to jump forward a little bit here, kind of go back to the YouTube thing. I would do it for a little while. Like I said, I would get jacked up over the numbers and and get it frustrated because it wasn't growing and I wasn't getting enough you know, response and everything. So I would quit. And then I'd come back to it again because I just realized that I liked it. And Eventually, I kind of stepped away from it for a little bit, and then the the pivot point. This was this was the moment that changed everything. Oh, I okay. Do you know who Tim Ferriss is? He sounds familiar. Tim Ferriss. He did the Four Hour Work Week and the Four Hour Body, and I think the Four Hour Chef. He's he's sort of like a productivity entrepreneurial guru type. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of the Tim Ferriss Show, where it is usually my job. Yeah, I, I think people have mentioned him in previous episodes of this mm. podcast. Yeah, I think they have. I think he's a pretty inspirational dude, especially around that particular time. I was really into what he was doing. I was I, I was trying to like get some businesses started and be entrepreneurial and you know, you know, all that kind of stuff. But he had some competition and it was like uh you can win a week with me on Richard Branson's private island kind of thing. And 
he was basically asking people to put out a video that says, you know, why I should pick you to, to go do this thing, like a mentorship. And so, yeah, I put the video on YouTube and it was, I think I started it by saying, this is for an audience of one, this is for Tim Ferriss, and here's why I should go to Richard Branson's private island, right? But I made it public and I got a comment from somebody that up until this point, really, most of the people that were watching it were just like my friends and like Facebook friends and stuff. And and the channel at the time, the way I was doing it was I was calling it Ask Joe. And it was 100% meant to be comedy. I wasn't taking anything really seriously. I would collect questions from friends and they were all over the map. I mean, you know, favorite movies and, you know, what type of hot dog is your favorite hot dog? All that kind of just dumb stuff. And I would, I would answer them with jokes, basically. And I would do like five or six, seven of these questions per episode. But yeah, it was mostly just personal friends and, and Facebook acquaintances and stuff. So I'd do this thing for Tim Ferriss. I hadn't posted anything in a good six months. And somebody commented, and I remember the name was Mr. Electric Pop. I don't know why that name stuck in my head. But random person. And he was like, dude, why aren't you posting more videos? I love your stuff. And I was like, who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, wait a second. Wait, somebody's watching this. And it just blew my mind that some random person out there in the world was, was watching these videos and liking them, you know? And so that, that really was impactful to me. Like if, it, if I hadn't received that comment, I don't know where I would be now because I got that and I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to make videos for that guy. You know, that's amazing. Yeah. Like, I don't care if anybody else in the world is watching. If there's somebody out there that likes this, I'm going to make videos for that guy. And so I basically made a pact for, with myself that I was going to put out a video every Monday, no matter what. Even if it was just me on my phone, like, I got nothing, guys. Hey, what's up? You know, and there were some of those. But yeah, starting, that was about the, the fall of 2014. And so, yeah, I, I got into this schedule of posting weekly. I've been doing it ever since. And that's when the channel finally started to get some traction and start to grow. And I didn't, I didn't worry so much about the views anymore or the number of comments. It was just like, this is what I do now, <laughs> you know? And as the channel grew and I started to get some actual numbers of subscribers, a thousand, five thousand, you know, it's, it started to creep into my head, like maybe this is something I could do, you know? And I took a, an online course. I don't know if he's still doing this anymore for, for anybody who's listening that might be wanting to get started on YouTube. There's a guy named Tim Schmoyer. Does that name ring a bell to you? Yeah, he, he's still doing this. So you, you were an alumni of him. So he, he runs, he still has a channel called uh, Video Creators. Mm -hmm. And he did this thing called the Video Creator Labs, or maybe it was just Video Labs. Yeah, it was like a eight-week course or something like that. Yeah. And he had 20 people in there and you would have, you know, weekly Zoom calls and he would go over different stuff. It was very helpful. It was, it was, it was one of a few different things that I kind of did just to understand and learn the platform a little better. And in that, I made friends with some people that, to this day, we meet weekly on Zoom. We're like a little, we call ourselves a mastermind, but we're really just a, a few guys hanging out on Zoom. Most of them have actually moved on to like making products for Amazon. They're more like entrepreneurial type thing. I'm kind of the only one that really stuck with YouTube. The others still have their YouTube channels, but I'm the only one that's like really, you know, doing the YouTube thing. But anyway, one of them got picked for this thing called the YouTube Next Up program. Oh, yeah. Are you familiar with yep. that? I don't know if they even do it anymore. I don't think they do. Do but the, yeah, we we do. have several ex next up people in in Nebula, so yeah. Oh okay. Well, I got picked for it. I, I, I um, this buddy of mine, Greg, he had a channel called Greg's Garage. Uh, he's one of my Wednesday night guys, but uh, he got picked for it in New York, and he was like, "Oh, it was a great experience. You should sign up." 
Um, he had a bigger channel than me at the moment or at the, at the time I had like 11,000, maybe 12,000 subscribers. And that was, I think the, the range was 10,000 to a hundred thousand subscribers is what they were looking for. So thankfully I got picked. I was the smallest channel there <laughs> and I went to New York for a week. It's basically YouTube camp. The big thing about the next up program was they basically treat you like a rock star that you, you get put up in a really nice hotel. Like you could show up to New York with nothing but the clothes on your back and be fine. They pay for your Uber rides. They pay for your flight. They pay for meals. I mean, like they really take care of you. It was really great. And they teach you all about production and stuff. I mean, a lot of it I already knew because, you know, film school and whatnot, but they also teach, teach you strategies for, for the channel and whatnot. And you just meet a lot of really cool people, you know? So I had that experience. This was 2016, the fall of 2016. And I came back, so I was gone for a week, and I had been really burnt out of my job for a while. But I had that experience, got treated like a rock star. Kind of, they put the thought in my head that, like, this is something you can do. You know, you can make a living doing this. And I came back, and that's when I had the meeting with my boss, and I was like, I have more value to this company as a video content strategist than I do as a copywriter. You know, and I basically made that pitch, and I, I you know, had a whole presentation together and I did the whole thing, had rehearsed it in the shower many times, you know, and she basically just sat there and she was like, well, I need you to be a writer. (laughs) Oops. Oh no. And I was like, okay, so that's where I stand. And I I should also mention this, this was the newspaper at a time when newspapers were dying on the vine left and right. We were having layoffs every six months or so. Six to nine, every six to nine months, there was a massive layoff. And I just kind of somehow kept surviving them. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't received a raise in like five years. There was literally no advancement potential whatsoever. And I guess the writing was on the wall. So I, I, you know, I made that final pitch. It's like, look, this is, this is what I want to do. This is where I have more value to you guys. And she just put the kibosh on it. And I remember when I got back from the next up program, I walked into the building and it's kind of hard to explain, but it's, it's, it's sort of like a shotgun building. It's got this long hallway, literally from the front to the back. It's just like hundreds of meters long. <laughs> it's a very awkward hallway if you see somebody coming because you got like, you know, a full 30 seconds to like be like, hey, well, how's the weather, you know? But I remember coming in the building and walking down that hallway and I just felt like the walls were closing in on me. You know, it just, it just felt just oppressively shitty. And I had that conversation with her, did not go well. And on the way home, I was listening to a podcast that I'd been listening to for a while. It was called Tube Talk, and it was about YouTube. And it's, it's I don't think it exists anymore, but it was, it was run by a guy named Jeremy Vest, who uh, is a local, not Dallas, but McKinney, which is a suburb of Dallas. And I had met him at some meetup, you know, locally and everything. But I was, I was listening to it on the way home, which is what I normally did. And at the end of it, this female voice came on and was like, are you looking to do a job in YouTube? We're hiring people to join our team. And I was like, what? Like the timing was so weird because I had just had that conversation with my boss. So yeah, I got home and I had already connected with Jeremy on Facebook somewhere along the way. So I just sent him a message and I was like, hey, are you really hiring right now? And he said, yeah. And I was like, can we talk? <laughs> <laughs> and I left my job and I started working for him. I, I took a pay cut to do that. It's funny because I, I look back now, I don't know, have you, ever, have you ever done anything in your past that you look back on and you're like, who was that guy? Plenty. You yeah. know, 
yeah, like where did I get the balls to do that? You know, <laughs> this was one of those. This moments. was one of those. Right. This was one of those moments, definitely. And and, and I look back now, I had fifteen thousand subscribers, maybe, and I quit my job. And and I talk I talk to my wife about that often, and and she's like, I, 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 we'll be, we'll be talking about, it and I'll be like, I must have been so miserable. And she's like, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you were miserable. And, uh, you know, I can't give too much credit for her or can't get enough, get, can't give enough credit to her for being completely supportive of that decision. You know, she could have, you know, we, we, we've got a mortgage to pay and everything. She could have been, um, really scared and, and not been cool with that, but she was totally behind it. I think she knew I was just miserable and that would make me happy. So, so yeah, I started working for Jeremy at his company. It was called VidPal. I, I managed YouTube channels for, for corporate clients. I actually managed three channels for HP, Hewlett Packard. Wow. Yeah. And so I, I got YouTube certified, Google certified and all that. I learned a ton from him and eventually his business model kind of shifted. And I sort of like what I was doing sort of got phased out. And by a stroke of utter luck, I was just at the point where it's like, okay, I, I can I can sustain myself off of YouTube, you know, as long as I don't pay taxes. <laughs> okay. I'll be fine. So I got myself in a little bit of buying later on. But yeah, I was able to just sort of transition out of that. So I had, I transitioned out of the Dallas Morning News to this other job and then transitioned out of that to doing YouTube full time. And that was, um, I guess, 2017. And I've been doing it full time since then. Wow. So this opportunity to work for someone else in a YouTube-related endeavor was an opportunity for you to learn how to run your own stuff. Did you acquire a lot of the skills there? I learned a lot of best practices. And, and like I said, I had to get Google certified to work there. So there was a lot of just, you know, bells and whistles type stuff that you had to learn for that, which most of it I've forgotten. And probably a lot of it isn't even true anymore. But uh, yeah, I mean, he was, he was a bit of a mentor. He's, he's just one of these like analytics guys who just really gets into the data and the, the science of the whole thing. And he just kind of taught me what he knows. Yeah. So looking right now where we are in a world where all that has happened and now you are a full-time creator working on your own stuff. Mm -hmm. Was there any particular video or series or a specific topic that actually gave you the critical mass necessary to take the decision to do full-time? The closest that I have to that would be a video that I did on the Fermi paradox. Right. Are you familiar with that? Yes. So yeah, this is going back, back a little bit, but when I, like I said, when I was first doing the channel, it kind of, here's how it evolved. I, I'd started doing just jokey, nonsensical answers to questions that friends were giving me, you mm -hmm. know? that were all over the map and, and there was no focus whatsoever. <laughs> it was just sort of like a question and answer kind of thing. And that's how it was asked Joe and it eventually became answers with Joe. But I started to realize that the videos there were like every once in a while I would give a real answer, you know, like somebody would ask a question. I'm like, I'm curious about this. Let me go look it up. You know? So I would go look it up and give an actual answer. Those tended to perform a little bit better. Over time, I started to realize that the videos where maybe I, did a few little jokey answers at the beginning. And then I had like one highlighted answer where I actually gave a real answer that was like, you know, maybe at least half or two thirds of the video. Those started to perform a little bit better too. And then, so it eventually kind of came down to like, okay, one answer per video. Those were the ones that were performing better. And I'm talking about incrementally better. There wasn't any kind of big explosion or anything. And then somebody asked a, a question about the Fermi paradox. And it was actually a personal friend of mine, but yeah, so I did that one. And 
I don't, I wouldn't consider it viral today, but at the time it felt viral. It got like 50,000 views, which was a lot at the time for me. And it was just kind of like, whoa, okay. You know, it just kind of got my attention. And I was like, well, maybe I should kind of lean into that a little bit. Let's talk a bit more science stuff, you know? Well, actually what happened was when that video did well, it got a nice little pop of subscribers, which at the time was, you know, kind of percentage wise, it really boosted the size of the channel. So these new subscribers... I guess you could say they were nerds and they were more interested in that type of content because they found the the Fermi paradox one. For whatever reason, the Google, you know, algorithm smiled on it. So they started asking more sciencey questions. So I started answering more sciencey questions and then it just kind of became a feedback loop and the video, uh, the, the content began to take on that direction. So the Fermi paradox video was the one that really changed the direction of the channel and became more of like a science communication channel mixed with humor. But the one that the one that stands out above all the others in terms of like performance, the only one that really, really went viral was a pretty dark topic. It was how long can a severed head survive? <laughs> Great title, though. Lovely. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's one of the things you learn is titles make a difference. Yeah, that that's the only one that really ever really got a lot of views. And um, so to this day, that's the the top video. But that was actually in 2016, 2017. It's been a while. I still haven't beaten it. <laughs> I got I to gotta look it up because that just based on that title, if something with that title crossed my home screen, I would likely be like, huh, and just and click it out of pure, pure curiosity. Yeah. So it has been years since then. Is there anything looking in your creative future, in your YouTube future, or your content creation future that you're currently looking forward to? Hmm. Hmm. Good question. Uh, so I actually, this is interesting. So this is where I am right now. This is an interesting time to be having an interview about my, my YouTube channel. I took a break in April and it's the first time that I have missed a Monday upload in like six years, right? Holy crap. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was very <laughs> locked into that consistency, which by the way, that whenever people ask for advice on channels, like that's, that's the first thing I go to is just like have a consistent, you know, weekly well, it didn't have to be weekly, but have a consistent schedule of uploading videos so that people know when to look for them. And I could go off on a whole tangent on that, but I was very, I was very, very consistent about that. But in April, well, the deal was when I, when I hit a million, I hit a million at the end of last year, I hit, it was like just before Christmas. It was a nice little Christmas present. And my plan was once I hit a million, just to like take a break, <laughs> you know, like that was the milestone I wanted to get to and then be like, okay, now I can kind of just give myself a breather. But I don't know, what wound up happening was, you know, you're, you're always like measuring the trajectory of the channel and the analytics and like when you're going to hit which milestone and stuff. And I thought I was going to hit it at the end of November and I was going to take December off, which is a nice time to take off because of the holidays and everything. But then everything, I don't know about everybody else, but my channel just died in November. It just slowed way down. So it, it, wouldn't, it didn't happen until the end of December. So by that point... You know, I have sponsorships and, and you know how this works, but they, you know, they schedule those out ahead of time. And, and uh, I already had inventory down for first quarter of 2021. Anyway, long story short, I was obligated to make the videos through March and it was only finally in April where I was like, okay, I need to, I need to take that break that I was, I was, you know, planning on doing because I, I could just really use it. So I took that time to kind of reassess the channel and where things are going and where I want things to go. It was a nice moment after hitting that milestone to sort of like, you know, where do things go from here, you know? And so I, I took April, which by the way, was 
again, I don't curse too much, but it was such a mind fuck because I had been on this hamster wheel, this constant, you know, constant, constant, constant working for six years. And I'd never just taken a moment to be like, I mean, even when I was on a vacation, I had to take my laptop with me to make sure the videos went out or I had to like pre pre post them or whatever, you know, like, you know, double, double time in the beginning or whatever. This was the only time I just was like, I am not going to work or think about the channel, <laughs> you know? And it's like immediately I started like forming all these rules and goals around my time off. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to get that done and all this stuff. And it's like, no, stop. You gotta, you gotta stop doing that. <laughs> you know, it was, it was so hard for me to just get out of that mode. And, and the idea was like, if I can just, if I can just rest my brain for a few weeks, you know, let's just see what comes out of it, you know, just put a pause and everything. So anyway, that, that itself was really weird, but I took April to sort of like right, right at the very end of the, of the month as I, you know, was kind of getting things ramped back up, which was another challenge. I don't know. It's like all the little subconscious thoughts started to gel in terms of like content strategy and where I wanted things to go on the channel and what comes next. And, uh, I took a look at my, you know, in the analytics, you can see the last 48 mm -hmm. hours, like which videos are what, what, you know, how they performed over the last 48 hours. So I thought, well, let's take four weeks away. And after not having any, with no recency bias to it, you know, which videos What's, what's the background noise here? Which videos are just sort of performing in the background, right? And so the, I looked at the last 48 hours. This is like on April 30th. And eight, was it eight of the 10? Seven or eight out of the 10 were either weird, mysterious, or dark in some way. And I was like, that's interesting. Those are the, those are the long tails that just kind of keep, keep going, you mm -hmm. know? So I thought maybe I should lean into that a little bit. So that's kind of been my new content strategy is to kind of lean more into the, the weird and mystery content. I mean, like the severed head video, that's a perfect example. But I mean, the way I like to do it, because I do still consider a, a, at least a little bit of a science communication channel is, is you know, you, you, you start with a weird, salacious topic, but then dig into it and get into the science behind it and get into the, the interestingness behind it, you know? So that's kind of where I've been going. And I think I've got like maybe three or four videos that have come out as part of that content strategy. And so far, so good. But I, I like the idea of getting my videos, of having like two tiers of videos, like having a tier two that's just sort of like your basic pump them out kind of videos. And then having a tier one level of content where I get out from behind the desk, I go somewhere, I interview people, I dig into a, a topic in a little bit deeper fashion. This might be more of a I don't know, like a curiosity stream level or Netflix level type of content. Like I want to elevate it to that point. And so that's, that's where I'm trying to go now is like create a little bit of wiggle room with the, the regular content so that I can focus on bigger projects like that. Well, I'm looking forward to that already. That sounds lovely. <laughs> well, the one that I'm really excited about and I, I'm a little frustrated because I haven't really had the time to focus on it as much as I would like is there's a place here in the United States. It's in North East Louisiana called Poverty Point. And it is an ancient archaeological site that goes back like three or 4,000 years. It's like this was, this was built around the same time as the Egyptian pyramids. And it, it, I became fascinated by it because, you know, we, we know about the Native American cultures that were here before the Europeans came along, but there was something before them, you know, People have been in North America for at least 15,000 years that we know of. It, that's, that date seems to constantly be being, uh, pushed back. But there's this 
archaeological site in northeast Louisiana that goes back three or 4,000 years. It's a series of mounds in circles that they don't really know what it was used for. They don't really know who built it. Like when the European uh, settlers and colonizers came over here and found it, the Native Americans that were there, it was, it was almost like Stonehenge. They're like, we don't really know who built this. It's just always been here, you know? And I just became fascinated by that because you never hear about that kind of stuff. And it's not too far away. It's like a five-hour drive from where I am. So I, I plan on going out there and shooting and interviewing people and doing a whole thing around that. I'm, I think that'll be a lot of fun. Well, I now I want to find out. So let me know how that goes. <laughs> I will definitely would like love to yeah. watch that video. Yeah, I'm so thank you, thank you for all your time and for your your, your story because it has a, a lot of twists and turns and, and it's interesting where <laughs> it has ended, but it still has a lot of future to it. And I look forward to where it's going to. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you. I, I hope so. 